Stories, fables, ghostly tales. This is the continuation of The Shadow on the Blind. Enjoy. Dancing was kept up with great spirit till the small hours, and as the clock in the hall chimed, a quarter past three, the old house resounded to the half-sad and wholly romantic strains of a waltz by Waltufel. The guests who came from a distance had begun to depart, and Mr. Balmont stood in the porch laughingly seeing Lady Jane Grey and Flora MacDonald in their carriage. Just then, a maid gave a message to one of the footmen to Mrs. Baymont, who sat fanning herself near the door of the ballroom. If you please, ma'am, nurse says Master Harry is awake and crying with the music and says he won't go to sleep till he sees you, ma'am. Tell nurse I will come directly. And excusing herself to the lady who sat next to her, she slipped out of the room. In the hall, she met her father as he was entering his study. I'm going to put this miserable encumbrance by, he said, smiling and nourishing the admiral's cocked hat, which he had gallantly carried the whole evening to his great inconvenience. And I'm on my way to the nursery to see little Harry. And Mrs. Beaumont ran upstairs, softly singing to the sweet music that floated from the ballroom. Mr. Stackpole laid his hat on the table and looked at the clock on the mantelpiece. A quarter past three. I'm tired, and the young people ought to be. Hi-ho! I'd rather give ten dinners than one dance. <gasps> and he yawned profoundly, sank into a low chair by the fire, stretched his legs out before him, and closed his eyes. Sleep fell upon him instantly, and for several minutes he was lost in its depths. Light and sound had ceased to exist for him. His brain was steeped in silent darkness. Mr. Balmont still stood in the porch. The servants had returned to the house, and he was alone. It was a mild winter's night. He flung a cloak over his matador costume and stepped into the open air. I shan't be missed for five minutes while I smoke a cigarette. And he walked briskly along a broad path some thirty yards from the house, from which he had a perfect view of the front of Harbledon Hall. And very pretty its cheerful brightness looked against the dark background of the star-set sky. Brilliant rays of light shot from the undraped windows, and those that had the blinds drawn down showed the outline of objects in the room thrown upon them in shadow, as clearly as from a magic lantern. Involuntarily, he raised his eyes to the window of Mr. Snackpool's sitting room, and stood rooted to the spot. Two figures as clearly defined as silhouettes were visible on the pure square of the blind, the shadows of an old man and a young man struggling together. From the shape of the heads George Beaumont saw that they wore tie wigs, and there was the clearly cut shadow of the ruffles and the wrists. And the younger and taller man wore a large Steinkirk with richly laced ends round his neck. At first he thought that they were guests dressed in the costume of the early Georgian period though how they had gone upstairs in that room, or why there was a deadly struggle between them, he did not know. But wonder and speculation were swallowed up in terrified interest as he watched the course of the brief conflict. The elder and shorter man, who stooped considerably, appeared to be unarmed, and seized the younger man by the throat 
where he shook himself free, stepped quickly back, drew his sword, and, plunging forward on his right foot, ran his opponent through the body. He staggered backward and fell out of sight below the level of the window, and there remained only the shadow of the younger man in clear profile of the blind. He stood for a minute, looking downward, and George Beaumont had time to observe the finely cut features of a total stranger. Then he saw that he wiped the blade of his sword, turned and walked away, and his shadow passed out of sight, leaving the window blind a blank, luminous square. Indoors at the same time, Mr. Stackpole had been waked from his short sleep by a sound in his wife's sitting room overhead, and he sprung to his feet with every faculty concentrated in listening. A noise as of chairs pushed back and upset on the polished floor, and a scuffling of feet as though two men were struggling together. Then a moment of silence, a loud stamp, and a heavy fall that seemed to shake the ceiling, followed by deep groans. Good God! What can be the matter? cried Mr. Stackpole, and he rushed from the room into the hall. The front door stood open, though the inner glass doors were closed, and neither his son-in-law nor any servants were there. He stopped to call nobody, but ran upstairs to his wife's room just as his daughter came quickly down from the story above with a white and terrified face. Oh, Papa, someone has just frightened me so, but whoever he is is in there. I saw him go into Mama's room a few minutes ago, and I'm so glad you've come, for I dare not follow him. And without asking Ella of whom she was speaking, Mr. Stockpool flung the door wide open and rushed into the room. No one was there, not a chair or table displaced, and the electric light illuminating every corner of the room forbade the possibility of anyone being in hiding. It's, it is the most extraordinary thing, he exclaimed, wiping the perspiration of terror from his brow as he spoke. I would not have your mother know of it for the world. Have you seen him too? said his daughter faintly. Seen whom, child? Seen what? No, I've seen nothing, but I've heard enough to last me a lifetime. God forbid that that I should hear it again. And he looked about the room and under the table, fairly stupefied with amazement. He passed me on the stairs, just as I came out of the night nursery, said Mrs. Belmont, anxious to tell her experience, without waiting to hear her father's. A tall young man ran quickly by me, dressed in a blue coat, with ruffles at the wrists, and a great lace cravat, and a wig tied with a ribbon at the back. He carried a long, thin sword in his hand. At first I thought it was Arthur Newton, who wore a powdered wig like his this evening. But I remembered his coat was black and he left early. When I saw his face, it was a stranger's, and he looked cruel and dispassionate. I followed him till I saw him go into this room and shut the door after him. Then where the devil is he now? said Mr. Stackpole. This is some miserable practical joke. And be even with them, yet I'll get to the bottom of it. And as he spoke, the door that he had taken the precaution to close burst open, and his son-in-law entered in his matador's dress, pale and breathless, looking as if the ball had turned and given him chase. Oh, George, have you seen him too? said his wife. Did you hear anything? 
asked Mr. Stackpole. Sit down, man. You are trembling like a leaf. There were two of them, an old man and a young man, in this room a minute ago. In God's name, who were they? And why did you not stop them before murder was done? He said excitedly. Mr. Stackpole grew quiet and self-collected at the sight of his son-in-law's agitation. Pull yourself together, George, and tell me what you mean. There is something up tonight that needs explaining. But where are they? They were in this room, and if you were with them, you must have witnessed what happened. Or if you only came upstairs just now, you must have met the young man leaving the room. The old man will never stir again. And he lifted the tablecloth and looked under the table. How come you to speak confidently of who was in this room a few minutes ago, when you were downstairs all the while? Asked Mr. Stackpole. I was smoking a cigarette in the garden after seeing the westerns off, walking on the broad path, when I looked up at Mama's sitting room window and saw the shadow of two men on the blind, shown by the electric light as clear and sharp as in a magic lantern. I saw their profiles perfectly, but I did not know their faces. They wore wigs tied behind and ruffles at their wrists, and the younger, taller man, as I saw by his shadow, wore a laced steinkirk around his neck. They struggled together and the old man grasped the young man by the throat, but he tore himself free, drew his sword, and ran him through the body. He fell below the level of the window, out of my sight, and the younger man stood for a minute, wiped his sword, then moved away, and left the blind a blank sheet of white. Good God! And I heard it all in my room, below the struggle, and the fall, and deep groans! said Mr. Stackpole. And I met the young man if it was anything human, and he passed me on the stairs, said his daughter, seizing her father by the arm. Oh, Papa, Harbleton Hall is haunted. People were right about it. Do let us leave this dreadful place tomorrow. And the concluding notes of the sad, wonderful world sighed through the house as she spoke. Mr. Stackpole shook his head. I don't see how this is to be done. For your mother must not be frightened. For heaven's sake, try to look at it as if nothing had happened. We shall be missed downstairs. I'll go, and you two must manage to bid our guests good night decently, and not to alarm those who remain till tomorrow. We must rouse no suspicions. George, fetch Ella a glass of champagne. It will do her good. Oh, don't leave me alone, cried Mrs. Belmont like a frightened child. Then I shall send wine up for you both, said her father. And mind you must follow me directly. Mr. Stackpole rejoined his guests, who had not missed him, and were in the midst of the last dance with as much freshness and enjoyment as if it had been their first in the evening. At length all the guests had departed except those composing the house party, and the ladies soon retired, leaving the gentlemen to have a smoke in the billiard room. You don't look very well, Beaumont, said a young man dressed as a Tyrolean peasant, as he lit a cigar and looked up at his friend's pale face. It's nothing. Only waltzing makes me giddy. And he mixed himself some brandy and soda. One by one, the guests bade goodnight and left the room, till there only remained Mr. Stackpole, his son-in-law, and Mr. Liston, 
a gentleman with very long legs, wearing tights to display them to advantage. Did your father-in-law know when he took Harberton Hall that it was supposed to be haunted? He said in a low voice to Mr. Bermont. Mr. Stockpool happened to hear the question and replied to it himself. We heard some foolish gossip of the subject, for of course no place stands empty so long we are legends being invented to account for the fact. But I am not the man to listen to vulgar chatter. I took the house and have been highly delighted with it. And Mr. Belmont could only admire his father-in-law's admirable self-possession. Just so. And the electric light is the true cure for the supposed supernatural? Of course, you know how suddenly Sir Roland Shaw left the place. Oh, yes, we've heard all about that. <laughs> Said Mr. Stackpole, forcing a laugh. Do you know, I doubt whether you have heard all about it, at least... If you have, you must be a cheerful sort of person, if you can laugh at it, said Mr. Liston. <laughs> Why, of course, the whole thing was a foolish practical joke, something connected with a magic lantern, if I remember rightly. Magic lantern? I never even heard the word mentioned, no. If you care to hear the truth about it, I think I can tell it to you. I lived in the country all my life. And I know the story of Harbleton Hall by heart. I only wonder you don't. I should not tell you no, if I thought it would make you nervous. But since you have put in the electric light and done up the house in such cheerful, modern style, the whole place has changed, and anyone might enjoy living here. Let us hear the story, said Mr. Stackpole abruptly. I see I've roused your curiosity. The story goes that some hundred and fifty years ago, there lived in this house a certain father and son, who hated one another like the devil. And it is needless to say that there was a woman in the case, and a fortune at stake. The older man must have been an uncommonly bad lot, and he is said to have grossly insulted the young lady his son was about to marry, having in the first instance proposed to her himself and being refused. The two men had a deadly quarrel about it in this very house, and the upshot was that the son, mad with passion, ran his father through the heart and killed him on the spot. There I shan't say anything more about it if it's too much for you, said Mr. Liston, struck by the white faces before him. Go on, go on, said Mr. Stackpole. Well, one winter's night, now eight years ago, as Sir Roland Shaw was coming home late, walking across the garden, and he looked up at the window on a room on the first floor, where a light was burning, and he saw on the blind, in clear outline, the shadows of the old man and his son struggling together, and he saw the young man run his father through the body with his rapier. I cannot bear it. I cannot bear it, said George Beaumont, pale as death and looking ready to faint. You could but say that if you had seen the grim shadow yourself. It certainly is a horrid story, and though I can't say that I believe in ghosts myself, I can offer no explanation of the details I have given you. Sir Roland believed it, and he was a clear-headed man. 
and a matter-of-fact sort of person. Other members of his family, too, saw and heard unaccountable things that night. One of his sons, who was sitting up late for his father, met the shadow of an evil-looking fellow dressed in a blue coat and wearing a powdered tie wig, hurrying along an upper passage, carrying a naked rapier in his hand. And Lady Shaw was waked by a sound in the room next hers, which was the room where the shadows were seen on the blind, a sound of struggling and upsetting of chairs, followed by a heavy fall and deep groans. Now, if only one person had thought that he'd heard or seen unaccountable things, Sir Roland would have made the best of it and stayed on at Harberton Hall. But by Jove, when three rational beings are each an eye or ear witness, it becomes intolerable. Whether you believe in ghosts or not, you can't put up with a thing like that. By heaven, you can't. That's true, said Mr. Stackpole, wiping his moist brow. And now, listen, that you have told me this, I'll tell you something in return. I and my family leave Harberton Hall tomorrow for the precise reason that drove Sir Roland Shaw out of it eight years ago. Never. As sure as I'm alive, we leave here tomorrow. I must find some reason for our sudden flight. But go we must, and I cannot have my wife alarmed. I would not spend another night in this house for the world, said Beaumont. But my dear Mr. Stackpole, I hope that nothing I have said leads you to make this extraordinary resolution. Your imagination is excited by what you've heard. There cannot possibly be any cause. Why, you should leave this charming place that you have just fitted up to your own taste, said Mr. Liston soothingly. The story you have told us has only helped to explain what we already know. I tell you that this very night, not a couple of hours ago, in the blaze of the electric light, and with the house full of company, Beaumont, my daughter, and myself have seen and heard the sights and sounds that drove Sir Roland Shaw out of Harbison Hall, and we leave tomorrow, or rather today, for it is nearly six o'clock now, never to spend another night under this accursed roof. And Mr. Stapple's voice shook as he spoke. I have only to request, he added, that you will treat this communication as strictly confidential, for neither Beaumont nor I shall care to speak or to be spoken to about what has occurred tonight. Where was Mr. Stackpole's intelligent curiosity on the subject of ghosts and what had become of his courage? The one had been satisfied and the other daunted, and he had not the slightest desire to remain and investigate the mystery. At late breakfast, Mrs. Stackpole was shocked by the appearance of her family. It would have been difficult to say which was most pale and haggard her husband, her daughter, or her son-in-law. They made the poor excuse that late hours did not suit them and that dancing knocked them up, and she told them that they looked like very young children who had been to their first pantomime the night before. When the last guest was gone, Mrs. Stackpole saw that there was something seriously disturbing her husband and was at a loss to account for his changed humour. My dear... We will go up to town this afternoon with George and Ella. Impossible, replied his wife calmly. You, of course, can go if you like, but I really cannot. Oh, do come with us, Mama. You know how much Papa wishes it. 
said her daughter. Yes, do come with us, urged her son-in-law with unwanted ardour. It is so long since we met, forgetting that they had spent the last month together. Mrs. Stackpole laughed. There is evidently some deep-laid plot among you three to hurry me off. <laughs> well, if you will be any the happier for me coming with you, I'll do so. Though it is most inconvenient to leave home in this sudden way, said the good-tempered lady. And they travelled up to London that day, never to return to Harbleton Hall. Mr. Stackpole so managed that his wife did not know his real reason for giving up the most charming house they had ever lived in. He preferred that she should attribute it to his restlessness and caprice, anything rather than that her nerves should be shaken by hearing the truth. He consulted a fashionable physician, first giving him a hint that he wished to be ordered off to the south of France immediately, and the hint being taken, he told his long-suffering wife that Dr. Blank had recommended him to go abroad at once, and in two days they were en route for Marcelli's. Mrs. Stackpole was accustomed to her husband's impulsive, angular movements, so they did not greatly disturb her, but when a week later he said that he had decided to give up Harbordon Hall and to look for a place somewhere in the eastern counties, which were as yet untrodden ground to him, she shed a tear of present disappointment and prospective fatigue when the much-enduring lady had dried her eyes and her husband had enumerated to her in detail every reason but the real one for which he was leaving their beautiful home. She said, my dear, if I did not know better, I should be forced to believe you too had seen the ghost that frightened Sir Ronald Shaw out of Harberton Hall eight years ago. And so ends The Shadow on the Blind by Louisa Baldwin. I hope you all enjoyed it. The Critic You're sitting alone in your house, reading a book. You just recently released your short film entitled Scoot to the Internet. It's a simple story about a turtle that goes on a quest of self-discovery. You're rather proud of your work. You enjoyed making it and think your efforts paid off. You're about to turn to the next page of your novel when you hear a shuffling outside your window. You apprehensively glance out but see nothing. Must, Must be a mouse. You mutter to yourself. You refocus on your book, but soon are interrupted by the sound once again. This time, from outside your garage. Come to think of it, you don't recall ever seeing a mouse in the neighborhood. Yet again, you dismiss your suspicions. Perhaps it's a raccoon. You continue reading, but you're having difficulty concentrating on the story. Paranoia is beginning to creep into your psyche. You gently put a bookmark in your novel and shut it, placing it on the nearby table. You get up and put the kettle on. A cup of tea might calm your nerves. As you wait for the water to boil, you hear the shuffling again. But it's coming from somewhere else this time. Your basement. Something or someone has broken in. You, panicked, Instinctually, grab a dirty butter knife, the closest thing to a weapon in the immediate vicinity, to defend yourself with. The disturbing noises continue in the form of footsteps coming closer with each iteration. You hear a door creak open. Your hands are shaking. You hear someone walk upstairs. You can hear the adrenaline coursing through your veins. 
and then your tormentor makes his appearance. He is a man at least a foot taller than you. He sports a smug grin on his bony pale face and is wearing an overcoat with a turtleneck underneath. Your grip on the butter knife tightens at the sight of him. Hello, he says in a voice that grates your eardrums with its raspy British accent. I'm the critic. Today, I shall dissect the two-dimensional animated short film, Scoot. You panic and stab at this man with your butter knife. He swiftly grabs it before it even makes contact with him. He looks you directly in the eyes, as his grin widens ever so slightly. He reams the butter knife out of your hands and twirls it around once before tossing it far from your reach. Not a fan of criticism, he remarks. Unsurprising, not many people are. The critic somehow retrieved a laptop from his coat and places it on your kitchen counter. He spins you around to face it and stands to your left, holding your head in place with his right hand, his long, unfiled nails digging into your scalp. You're too scared to move. You have no idea what this man might do. The laptop automatically powers on, instantly revealing a Windows Media Player tab with what seems to be a copy of your film loaded upon it. Likely abbreviated judging by the timestamp at the bottom, the critic presses the start button. Your film's intro credit scene plays. You quickly notice that a zero in Time's New Roman font is superimposed onto the video in the upper right corner. Five seconds of useless intro, that's a demerit. The critic scolds. The critic pulls a sharp object out from his overcoat. It's a small, needle-like tool resembling an ice pick. He stabs it deep into your shoulder. Instantly, it feels as if your entire arm burst into flame. It must be tipped with some sort of chemical. You yell in pain. The critic chuckles ever so slightly at your reaction. You notice that the number superimposed on the screen changes to a one. The film cuts to the scene of the turtle protagonist in the city, confirming your suspicions that you are watching an abridged copy. The critic chimes in once again. Huh. That turtle is clearly the species Crassimis picta, yet is depicted as living in what seems to be coastal Oregon, where it does not naturally reside. Another demerit. The critic takes out another needle and stabs it into your leg. Pain shoots upward. The number on screen changes to two. Speaking of the painted turtle, that tone of orange on the bottom of the shell is a shade too light. Demerit. The critic stabs another needle right next to the last one, amplifying the pain further. The number changes to three. The scene shifts again to one of your personal favorites due to the effort it took to animate. The bar. The protagonist orders a martini. Ah, notice that in the corner, the shadow on the wall is about two degrees off from what it realistically should be. 
based on the lighting. That is certainly worth a demerit. The critic stabs another needle into your wrist, careful to just barely miss your arteries. Your hand might as well have been lowered into acid. The number on screen ticks up to four. And why a martini? Why not a slightly less cliché drink, such as my personal favorite, a Negroni? The critic stabs yet another needle into your lower abdomen. The pain at this point is near unbearable and quickly increasing. And it's not just the physical suffering, it's the mental agony of your beloved creation being used to mock you. The kettle you set on earlier emanates its ear-splitting wail. The critic pauses the video, turns off the stove, removes the kettle, takes the cup you had prepared, and pours the boiling water in. While he's distracted, you try to make a break for it, but the critic swiftly grabs you by the same shoulder he embedded a needle in with a bone-crushing grip, irritating your already burning nerves. He drags you back over to the laptop and takes a sip of the scalding hot tea without even flinching. It's not Lipton. I'll give you that, he says. I'll negate your demerit for fleeing. You swear that the accursed timed new Roman number on the laptop screen flickers to five before returning to four. The film resumes playing, and the critic keeps complaining about all sorts of little details and stabbing another ice pick into you for each one. Some of these are legitimate criticisms, albeit minor, such as the way you animated the movement of water in one scene, but just as many are nonsensical complaints about things such as the turtle lacking taste, and that he'd never make a good soup. Finally, the critic concludes his callous commentary with one final grievance about how the film should have ended with the entire cast being killed off in a fiery blaze. The video fades to black. You're twitching in agony. Fourteen needles embedded in your flesh. The critic smirks at you. He's done insulting your work. He'll leave you alone, right? The laptop screen displays the Times New Roman font once again, this time in white. Runtime, 15 minutes total, 5% critiquing. Demerit total, 14. Rate, approximately 0.933 demerits per minute. The screen goes completely black once again. The critic gently shuts the laptop. How unfortunate, the critic says. Yet another disgrace to cinema. However, perhaps with a little editing, a few modifications, something can be salvaged from the wreckage. Editing? You ask. Uh, uh, sure. I have some extra unused scenes saved somewhere. Maybe I could splice in some, make some tweaks, whatever you think would work. You hope that if you give the critic what he wants, he'll leave. Maybe then you'd have a chance to call the police and get this psychopath arrested. Oh, the film? No, that's unsalvageable. Complete dreck. The critic turns to you and smirks malignly. I was thinking something more long-term. The critic draws out a scalpel from his overcoat. It gleams forebodingly 
in the dim light. Your eyes widen as he stares directly at you. What we need here, you see, are a few changes to the director themselves. The story is written by Weaponized Cheens. Karibo. A Karibo scrapes its antlers against the outside of the post office, waking me up. The things are always feeding on the reindeer moss that grows at the base of the walls. As you would imagine, I've tried moving the plant, but despite my best efforts, it keeps growing back. I wait in bed with hopes that the noise won't continue, as I have many nights before. I should never have taken this job. Not that I had a choice. With this being the only housing I could find and the job coming with the quarter, I suppose it's not the worst work there is, but it still seems like a meaningless waste of my life. In regards to the job itself, the only bad parts are the loneliness and the occasional loud night. When the previous worker trained me, he told me that the scraping at night was the ghost of a previous owner who had locked himself outside. The poor man died scraping his bare hands against the siding in a vain attempt at survival before succumbing to the bitter cold. The worker told me the story like he'd really believed it. Who in their right mind is frightened of ghosts? The scraping returns, louder than before, and I get out of my small bed with a tired groan. Ugh. I quickly wrap myself in my coat, boots, gloves, and hat. A loud moan of wind greets me when I open the only door. Snow drives into my small living space, temporarily blinding me. Before I step out, I grab my rifle which hangs on the wall. Outside, the only light is a small bulb hanging above the door among a slew of icicles. I soon move out into the dark, pushing my boots down through the banks of snow. Thick clouds block out any possible moonlight, and nothing is visible except for the post office. As I trudge around the back of the building, I see the caribou, a frail and sickly looking beast. I fire a shot above its head, away from the office. The creature flees with terror, scurrying ungracefully through the snow. It seems to be lame in one of its legs. Satisfied that it shouldn't be returning, I trek back to the front door. It opened with a firm shove from my shoulder. Damn door, always sticking. I swear, I'm going to get trapped outside like that ghost one of these days. After shaking the thought out of my head, I hang the rifle up, seal the door shut, and go back to bed. Once again, the caribou rams its antlers against the wall. I sigh aloud. Ugh. There's no use trying to scare the poor thing away. I could shoot it, of course, but the thought saddens me somehow. Seems wrong to kill the animal just to get some sleep. Besides, I would also have to deal with the body later. Rubbing my eyes, I stand up to look out my only window. A cold pot of coffee and a few scattered letters sit on the cluttered table before me. Who in their right mind is frightened of ghosts? Certainly, just meeting one would confirm that there's something awaiting us after our death. That there's some kind of afterlife in store. Even if the ghost was malevolent, imagine the comforting implications of meeting such a being. Instead, nothing strange or supernatural ever bothers to venture into sight of our perfectly predictable path. Nothing breaks the mold or moves against the pattern. Nothing offers any relief from the terrifying lockstep of our lives. It's not like the movies. There are no miracles, no monsters under the bed, and no experiences after death. Our lives are just a series of meaningless jobs leading up to a cold, rational demise and eternal non-existence. 
the sickly caribou limps into my vision before collapsing in the snow, its life meaningless and insignificant against the blizzard. Are people frightened of ghosts because they can't bear the alternative? Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed the finale of The Shadow on the Blind, written all the way back in 1895. The way it's written really reminds me of a story asking to be adapted into a classic old-school film. It has all the characters, a strong narrative, and a slow-burning plot. Simple, perhaps predictable, but all-around enjoyable. And I hope you enjoyed it too. I really enjoyed the plot with The Critic. I'd imagine if films were measured and criticised this way, a lot of films would show some seriously immediate progress, albeit a dangerous career path to take with one's life. And the story about the caribou, what does that story mean to you? Everyone has a different interpretation, but I'm curious if any of you lovers have your own thoughts on the meaning in that story. Mates, thank you again for joining me. I had a blast in today's episode and I hope you did too. I want to thank my Ode Night T Titan supporter, the legendary. Matto Star, the myth, the man, the legend, thank you for being so amazing. I've been working hard on some new scripts and some new stories and tales which are all in the works thanks to your support, buddy. And thank you immensely for your email last week. I've already written my response and I'm in the process of recording and sending on to your lovely self. Thank you, you legend, for being the amazing person that you are. Cheers, Matto, and you'll be hearing from me soon. And the ever-awesome White Tea Warlord, the impressive Bruce Lee Bauer, the king of all things awesome. I hope you're doing great, mate. Thanks to you, I'm able to cover all my key overheads this month, particularly around websites and podcast hosting costs, and bring in more music of which you heard in this episode, which has been loads of fun to incorporate into these tales today. Thank you immensely for your support, man. And I greatly appreciate your kindness. Stay awesome and cheers for being a legend. And of course, my super mega tea enforcers, those lovely people that kickstart me every Monday. I'm lucky to have supporting me. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. Also, this goes out to all Patreons and listeners. You could hop onto Patreon and cast your vote in my weekly Patreon page poll, Mid Journey Madness. This is where I put up some prompts based on the stories I've covered today. You then cast your vote and we'll see what the AI makes for us. Again, for anyone interested in becoming a Patreon, visit www.patreon.com and become a legend. Now, when you find that right story, the one that's hunky-dory, the page that strikes you deeply with the feelings reside sweetly, it's the storyteller's job to bring those thoughts to life. And I'm thankful for the time you spent and my chance to spark that light. Thank you, you amazing listeners, my friends, and my supporters alike, for your time today and the next. Until next time, good night.